I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you, what got you In this movement data, a lot of our relationships are built on us collecting data and seeing something in the data that's really compelling, whether it's a superpower or it's an injury risk, and then sharing that with the athlete and the athlete saying, that makes sense because my left knee has been hurting, because I always get beat when I'm going to my right, because, yeah, my second jump is really bad. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. What we're saying resonates with them. And when that happens, then you build a relationship really quickly. That creates trust right away. And then they want to know what, what's the answer. You know, what do we do with that? How are we going to make that thing better? Dr. Marcus Elliott is a Harvard-trained physician specializing in performance enhancement and the development of elite athletes. As founder and director of P3, he is dedicated to applying cutting-edge science for optimal athletic achievement. He has trained some of the world's best athletes, including those at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, the New England Patriots, stars of the NBA, and many more elite athletes. Dr. Elliott's primary focus has been on peak performance and injury prevention, and on this episode, Dr. Elliott discusses some of the elite science that they're using to allow athletes to perform at their very best. For any elite performer, this is an episode that you will not want to miss. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Dr. Elliot, welcome to Wakai there. How are you doing today? Uh, Sean, thanks for having me. And, you know, like everybody else, we're kind of kind of feeling our way through the pandemic times. So I'm not going to say I'm perfect, but I'm going to say it's uh, I'm pretty good. Yeah, navigating these complex times. You're at the intersection of so many things that have been the biggest passions in my life. So I cannot tell you how excited I am for this conversation. But I want you to set a little bit of groundwork. If you're at a dinner party and someone walks up to you, how do you describe it is what you do just because of how loaded your background is? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a that's a funny opening question because that's a, that that was very hard for me for a long time. You know what I what I what I do? Uh, I didn't really there wasn't really a career track for it. You know I didn't know I didn't there was no job description career track for it. And so um, I think a lot of people would f- refer to me as a trainer or they refer to me as a doctor. Um, and how I started referring to myself once people knew what it was was as a as a sports scientist applying applying uh, data and technology and in professional sports. Um, but nobody knew what a sports scientist was for the, 
for the early stages of my career. And so I, I just say that uh, I studied the body really hard and the, uh, we apply that, that, that science in professional sports. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and, you know. and, and, and the goal is to, is, is optimize performance and, uh, and reduce injury risk. So really trying to understand bodies in a more granular way. But I'm going to tell you that for a long time, uh, post-medical school, post-training, and even deep into my career, it was very hard for me to give a one line of what, what, I, what I did. Yeah, it's one of those funny things. Uh, it, it's almost one of those uncomfortable questions. You can see people turn in their seats a little bit because they're not exactly sure how to answer it. So when someone's ever accomplishing things in multiple domains, I'm always interested how they do that. But I, I want to rewind the clock here, and I think this is going to help set a little context of this conversation. And uh, about a conversation you had with your dad your sophomore year in high school. Can you talk about that conversation? Yeah. So I was... You know, I was one of these one of these guys that knew what he wanted to do at a pretty young age, and that was uh, that was the first time that I remember verbalizing it. I told my dad, I told my dad I was going to study the human body really hard, and I was going to apply it in professional sports. And so, uh, as you can tell, even there, it wasn't really a career track. You know, I didn't say I was going to be an astronaut. I, I said I was going to go do these different things, and it was kind of you know, it was bringing a couple of worlds together. But but I was really clear that that's uh, that's what I wanted to do, even when I was when I was uh, uh, 15 or 16 years old. And my dad bought me a subscription to our big physiology, the U.S. American Physiology Journal. Uh, so I started getting uh, started getting journals uh, sent to me when I was in high school in exercise physiology. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, I, I'm doing almost exactly what I said I was going to do when I was when I was 15 and it's kind of, kind of amazing. Cause it, it was, it was really right on the other side of, uh, I wanted to be a cowboy when I was little and, uh, and then I wanted to do this. And so, um, I'm just, I'm just fortunate that, 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 uh, that there's a career track for it. And, you know, the timing was right. And there's a whole lot of things that had to align to, to have the leverage in, in sport and in the world that we do right now. But, um, uh, but it certainly helped to have a clear vision of what I, what I wanted to do. What do you think it is that even enabled you to have that clear vision? Uh, I, I want to know about past experiences that led to that at such a young age. Mm. Well, you know, I was when I was a kid, I was I was a I was a good student, but I was um, I wasn't very committed to school. I sat in the back of the class and screwed around, but I was in all the you know all the college prep or advanced courses. But I loved sport. I loved sport. There was something about sport that just made sense. You know, and it's uh, and and it's still the thing when I it, you know there've been a few times in my career that I thought about not doing this, uh, creating this 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 track in sports science and and really you know kind of blazing this this new trail. And when I thought about not doing it, um, it I've always brought myself back by um, being um, really cognizant of the fact that there's there aren't such level playing fields anywhere else in the world. There aren't places where the objectives are so clear, the rules are so clear, and then you prepare as you well, and you and you and you and you, and you go to battle. And there's something so beautiful about that. So, and and you know, as an athlete, it's like it's it's one of the things when athletes uh, stop playing sport, they miss the camaraderie, they miss the band of brothers, and uh, and they miss the clarity of purpose. And uh, and I love living in that clarity of purpose of of sport. Um, again, where you, you know what the rules are, you know what the objectives are. You prepare as you well, and then you you go to battle, and then you reset, and you know, and you you adapt, and uh, and that was just that was I loved that when I was when I was fifteen, and I, I you know I love that now as I as I uh, head into my fifties. So um, 
beauty of sport. And I was also really intrigued by the human body, like at a young age. It was just, it was, it was amazing to me that, that, uh, that our bodies could do what they do. And, and, uh, the, the longer I've studied it, this is the only thing I've ever done in my life. The longer you study the human body, uh, the more amazed at it you are and the more you're humbled by how little we know and how sophisticated the body is. So it's, it was, it's, it's a great direction to go study. Bodies are incredible. How different are the athletes today compared to 30 years ago? They're completely different animals. It's the, the, the evolution of sport, I think, is oftentimes overlooked. The uh, you know, Michael Jordan uh, documentary is getting all this play. He was an amazing, amazing competitor, amazing athlete. Um, but I don't know, there's not a lot of conversation about, about where, the, where the level of play, you know, the, the level of athletes that were playing um, uh, 20 years ago. 25 years ago, it's different than the level of athletes playing right now. 1998 NBA athletes, there were some great athletes, but the, the overall standard is just so much higher now. Um, even in the time, you know, I do, I, we do a lot of work in the NBA. I think, I think, you know, I mean, the, the majority of, we get a chance to assess uh, about 60% of the, of the active roster. So about 60% of the players in the NBA right now have been through one of our facilities. So we, you know, we know, we know these guys really well. We know how their bodies work really well. And, and they're just better systems. We can look over the last 10 years at the, at the trajectory of these systems, their ability to change direction, their explosiveness, their deceleration, all, these, all these, these, these ballistic performance metrics are better. And the athletes are longer and taller and more skilled. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very different game than it was 20 years ago. And the, 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 the data um, absolutely supports that. Yeah, you bring up a great point. I was watching The Last Dance, the, the, the final two episodes the other night. I was just talking with my wife that just even how springy the athletes are today in comparison to then, uh, they, they just take off at a different level. So it's, it's always fun understanding that and studying that, which is a lot about your research. But I want to continue on the, on the trail of you blazing your own trail. H- have you always identified as someone who blazes their own trail? Um. I don't know if I have or not. I'm just going to be honest. Like I, I think I've, I think I've, I've known that, but I haven't necessarily embraced it. Um, which is to say that um, it's pretty clear my actions um, um, suggest that I was making my own path, not just not just professionally, but otherwise too. Um, um, meaning, you know, my academic path was was super unique, and and um, and a lot of the you know the real big conscious choices I've I've taken were. Um, independent decisions. You know, it wasn't just because somebody had laid a path out there. And so I, I think that it, it's pretty clear if you look at my history that, um, and I think everyone that knows me well would, would consider me to be um, uh, someone who's, who's pretty comfortable making their own path. But, um, but I think I didn't, I didn't, I didn't fully embrace it. Maybe because my, um, you know, my, my, I think my, well, if, if you train in medicine, uh, medicine is similar, it, which, which I did, which that was the last stage of my, my academic training. Medicine is, uh, is similar to the military in its hierarchy. I mean, the hierarchy is so clear. You know, you, if you're at this level, you wear that jacket. And if you're at this level, you can wear that jacket and this patch. And it feels very much like the military. And so in those environments, um, you're, you're expected to fill a role and know more than that role. And everything is very protocol-based. And uh, it works in a big system like the military or, or, or like medicine to some extent, but it also can stifle innovation and creativity. And, um, and, and so I, I think it was, it was good for me to train in that system, but if I continue to live in that system, I, uh, 
I, I we certainly wouldn't have been innovating as much as we are, and I think I, I wouldn't have enjoyed myself uh, near as, nearly as much as I have. Can you talk about your your innovative and creative side? Because it, I have to imagine it takes a great deal of innovation and creativity to be at the forefront of this, where you're combining sport and science and, and leading with that technology. So I'd love to know how you assess that. Yeah. So I, I think that for me, it, I, that what I, I, I think quite a few people that have that have that have contributed to. Um, um, almost any field, uh, quite a few of them will tell you that it was just really clear that they could see something. It was really clear. And in this space, it just was, it was crystal clear to me. Um, when I was, when I was in my, when I was training an undergraduate, which was just a little bit outside of, uh, of me playing sports really hard. Um, I, and, and I would also say that I, I, just to throw it in, like for me, a, a real emotional anchor for taking this path was that I had a, I, I love sports. I was on a, a pure sports track. I was doing enough school to, to get into college, but I was playing sports to, to get me to a better college and playing sports for fun and for life. And then I had this huge knee injury in my senior year of high school. And that, that really locked me in on this path as I, I spent a year being depressed and um, and and about half a year not really getting out of bed and uh you know my best friend moved into my position and started dating my girlfriend and and um, it was it was, it was a, a low point in my life but that really locked in this path of wanting to uh, stop people from going through injuries they didn't have to go through having more insight into how bodies work and uh, and 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 uh, i think it still drives me today you know i still have some some emotional drive around that so on the on the on the innovation side, you know, I, I honestly the path I took it didn't feel, it didn't feel very innovative. It felt like it was just an obvious thing to do. You know, when we started in in, in uh, professional sports, just the first team I worked with was the uh, New England Patriots. Um, they they had two training programs for all the players. There was a training program for speed athletes. There was a training pro- program for strength strength athletes. And they've got 60 athletes that are all unique, and they all have unique needs. And you're trying to optimize these these athletes that are you're paying a reasonable amount of money to, and the athletes are doing the best to optimize themselves. And our approach is that you get one of one or two prescriptions, one of two prescriptions. Those are those are only options. That that doesn't make any sense. And bodies are way too sophisticated, too complex, and too unique for that. And so, our approach was to um, collect more information on these bodies before we figured out what was right for them. And that just, that didn't seem innovative. It just seemed kind of obvious. And so, it, like I said, it didn't, didn't feel like it was, a, it was a breakthrough thought. It's just that once we started doing it, um, you realize how different it is than what was there before. How different was it in those early days with the Patriots compared to what you're doing now? Hmm. So with the Patriots, so first off, the approach is still the same. The approach is, um, what, what do we need to know about your body um, before we decide what we're going to do to it to make it work better? So instead of just us telling you, you know, you Sean, you show up at a preseason um, or you show up at our facility, and it's, instead of us having a workout ready for you, a training program, and having some idea of what you need to be as a, as a professional lacrosse player, um, we need to collect information on your body. We need to know what, how your body works where it sits uh, in, in, in all these important parameters, how your phys- physical systems are put together, and in our world, especially how it moves. And then we're going to decide what, what to do with it, where, where its risks of injury are, um, where its performance uh, detriments are. So we started collecting data on these athletes before we would uh, 
design programs for them. And um, that wasn't really done 20 years ago. And we started with the Patriots in 1999, and uh, there was no there was no physical testing that went on, basically zero. And, and it's hard for people to believe this, but even even in um, in professional sports today, there's a lot of clubs that there is no assessment in the preseason. You know, team, players show up and and they just kind of go. So you're not really collecting any information on them. That's changing quickly. In the last five years, it's changed a ton. And we've, we, you know, we've we've catalyzed uh, certainly catalyzed U.S. pro sports in this in this space, um, and it's heading towards a better world where where you're actually measuring bodies before you're trying to trying to figure out what they need to do. Um, so that that was very different. And and you know the problem with bringing in something that's really different is that um, it's threatening, and um, and it's especially threatening if you're if you're dealing with people whose other options career-wise are a lot worse than the ones that they <laughs> that they're in right now, and so I I, I, I really underestimated um, the resistance that that bringing in a um, what I would think of as a, is a much more precise, more more uh, technology and data-driven approach would would meet. And like in every sport, it was there was there was a pretty significant resistance with the Patriots. Um, the the program was being driven by their owner who's still their owner, uh, Robert Kraft. And when the, when the boss wants something done, then it, it gets done pretty well. And so I think that if the strength coach was honest about it, if the sprint coaches, maybe the physical therapist, if they're all honest about it, they weren't very excited about being part of this prevention program that I brought to the Patriots, uh, that they were having to jump through a lot of hoops and being told to do things that they'd never done before and being asked to deal with data they weren't used to dealing with. Um, but it worked out amazing. You know, we went from having a bunch of injuries to not having many injuries, and 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 all those guys were were pretty great to work with in the end um, because of the success of the program, because it's being driven by the owner. The stuff we were doing then, which was looking at muscle strength, looking for muscle imbalances, doing measuring sprint mechanics, and essentially um, assigning risk to athletes in the early off season, and then trying to correct those those risks. Uh, those, the things we were doing then, it, it was like kindergarten compared to the stuff we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And the stuff we're doing now is so much more sophisticated. The data is so much more granular, and our data sets are, are, are giant in professional sports now. And so we can, you know, with respect to almost any, any injury in professional sports, I can tell you the type of athletes that are predisposed to it, how significant those relationships are. Meaning, are, you know, is, if you do these things, are you at really high risk or are you at slightly increased risk? You know, we're we're really starting to get some some uh, some clear uh, uh, vision on this how granular data and, and especially movement data is related to risk and also advantages in sport and uh, and it's it's an amazing view right now. Can you talk about some of the, those granular details when an athlete comes into the P three facility? How are you assessing them? What are you guys looking at? Yeah, and I listen. I would also say this for you know I don't I don't know how many of your listeners are professional athletes are in pro sports. There's probably a chunk of them, but, but, um, but not the majority of them. And, and so for people that aren't in professional sports, uh, just realize that you all have bodies too. And all these, these principles that we're uncovering with these athletes that are paid a lot of money to go do what they do, um, will apply to non-professional athletes will apply to civilians. So these are, you know, these are the, the, a lot of the bodies, uh, processes and physical systems are conserved. And so uh, whether we're talking about an NBA player, we're talking about a Premier League soccer player, 
um, or we're talking about uh, a mailman, um, a lot of these these insights are going to hold across all those different activities. So, so uh, when an athlete comes to P3 right now, and and we also set up remote labs, like we test all the players at the NBA Combine in a partnership with the league, and you know we've done this with the German national team in soccer, and we started doing more and more of those activations, uh, where we can bring this data inside the four walls of a of an organization instead of them coming to us. But when a when an, when we assess an athlete. Um, We'll collect some traditional data, which is just looking at joint mobility, um, um, some 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 static measures. But the things that are, the things that that are creating the biggest value are almost all related to how the body moves. And so, if you're an NBA athlete, we're going to have you we're going to have you jump, cut, slide, change direction in different planes, and you're going to be doing those hard. You're going to be trying to drive your heart, your body pretty hard in a performance environment, but we're not that interested in the performance side of it. We're much more interested in how your body executes those movements. You know, there's so many different ways that, that an athlete can jump to 36 inches. And some of those systems are built to last and some of them are not built to last. And some of those systems uh, that an athlete using to jump 36 inches can be applied in lots of game time environments and other ones almost never happen in game time environments. And some of them are loading the knees more, some are loading the hips more and so on. And so how, how the body moves. And if I was going to impress one thing on, on, on you, Sean, and, and your listeners, it, it's this, it's how the body moves has huge implications for the good and bad things that happen to your body. How your body executes movements from sitting in a chair to landing from a jump has huge implications on uh, where you're going to wear out body parts, um, your risk of, of traumatic injury to those body parts, and also um, it, certainly elite sport uh, performance implications. So uh, this granular movement data allows us in oftentimes um, in really astonishing ways to predict the future for these athletes. You're talking about movement. I read a, a Wall Street Journal article that you were brought up in. It was talking about James Harden. And and I'd love, I think, because this will set some really good context into what you've discovered about these athletes. And we can talk specifically about James uh, because I think there's some misconceptions out there about the averages and above average performance and what are all the factors leading up to that. Do you, do you know what I'm talking to about talking about with this journal article? Yeah, well, I know I I am. Um, I, I, I remember the article and I, and I certainly know James and his system super well. Um, so when we look, when we assess James Harden, and th- there's these these moments happen all the time at our place right now. Nobody's ever had these big movement data sets. Nobody's studied movement with this type of granularity. You know, these these especially in elite athletes, but even in, in civilians, you know, that nobody has built these uh, these giant data sets of movement. And 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 so the amazing thing is we can ask questions about about movement in ways that uh, that we've never been able to ask questions. And it's and and they're telling amazing stories. So with respect to James, um, James is a, obviously he's a very nice basketball player. You know, he's uh, a top three player um, and in, in, in some recent years, the top player in the league. And, and yet James doesn't run that fast and he doesn't jump that high. And so when James comes out to get assessed by us, you know, he's had his vertical jump measured a gazillion times and he knows he doesn't run that fast. And I think he's generally a little bit He's excited to get assessed. He wants to learn about himself, but he's also a little bit sheepish because he knows he's going to be kind of mediocre at these things. And in fact, he was. You know, he doesn't jump that high. 
doesn't 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 accelerate that well. Um, but when we look at all this data on him, we look out over the sea of of average. Everything is around 50 percentile compared to NBA players. But then we see these 100 percentile spikes, 99 percentile spikes, and so he's either average or he's off the charts. And in in many cases, 100 percentile, the best we've ever seen. And it turns out that all those spikes uh, in this in this in James's data. They're all related to his breaking, how well he breaks. He's not, he's not, he's not the, the best at, at starting, but he's the best at stopping. So he doesn't blow by people with his acceleration, but he stops by them. And these aren't, this isn't a performance metric that people have traditionally looked at. Listen, in your sport, um, Sean, that's, that's going to be a really important metric. I mean, just like in, in, in soccer. Uh, stopping or in basketball, stopping uh, creates space. You know, if you stop better than someone, you create space, and that allows you to 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 uh, to create in in some peace and time. And that's what James does. He, he stops better than anybody we've ever assessed in the NBA. And by stopping better than him, he's able to build an offensive game that's that's probably unparalleled in the in today's uh, basketball arena. And so what do you do with that? You know, when we assess James and we, we see this, this, that he's the 100 percentile uh, breaker in the NBA. Well, first off, for us, it's just super interesting because it's not something people have ever described. Um, and, you know, we have this algorithm that, that uses data to describe it. And he's 100 percentile. And then you see his entire game has been sculpted around being a great stopper. Um, so we can, with James, we can work on his acceleration some, um, but we can also improve his stopping. We can work to train his stopping better. And we also um, um, can identify future um, elite breakers. So a couple of years after we assessed James, there's a, a youngster we're assessing from, um, from Slovenia. He's flying over from Slovenia to come uh, test and train with us. And he's kind of a, a kind of a pudgy white kid that doesn't seem that athletic, but he, even as a, as a teenager, uh, was at the 95th percentile of breakers uh, in the NBA, meaning he stopped better than 19 out of 20 um, uh, NBA athletes we had as a teenager, as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old athlete. And so when he went in the league, and his name is Luka Doncic, when he went in the league, we already knew that he had an amazing system, that that could play. And um, and everyone's trying to figure out, can this guy be, be a great athlete? And they're trying to figure out when they're going to draft him. And we're saying, look, he's already a great athlete. He has a system that's better as an 18-year-old that's better than 19 out of 20 NBA players. So, so you can use these insights in scouting. You can use it in training an athlete. You can, we, we assess a lot of athletes that are great accelerators, but they have re- really crappy breaks. And um, in, in our model of elite sport, that's the most dangerous system, you know, one that can, can go really fast but doesn't stop very well. Um, so then you build braking systems. And interestingly, um, I, should, I should throw this in too, Sean. It's, it's, hopefully it's not getting too granular. But, but it turns out that this braking system is a really trainable system. Um, the acceleration systems are harder to influence. Like it's rare that we get an NBA player and make them jump three or four inches higher. That's just really rare. I know everybody says it, but it's really hard to do. It just is. That's, reality is it's very hard to do. But these braking systems can be affected in big ways. And so instead of just trying to make your athlete jump higher, uh, which isn't going to be very effective, if you understand the systems that drive braking, 
and um, and how to train those systems, then you can develop this other superpower, a, a James Harden, uh, Luka Doncic uh, style superpower. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating to me. I could hear you talk about this all day, believe me. So go, go as deep as you'd like. I'm really intrigued, though, some of those models that are predictive of success, and you were just kind of talking about those systems like James's ability to, to stop and use his brakes. What are some of those other key metrics that you found the top performers are usually in the, the upper percentile of? You know, the uh, so I, I when you look at if you when you assess athletes in elite sport, when we have if we look at our NFL database or NBA database, um, um, Major League Baseball database, when we have when we have uh, um, athletes that are uh, outliers with respect to any of these physical systems, if there's something that they do clearly better than their peers, they usually find a way to optimize that system, find a way to be successful, even if it's in a niche. And so um, that, I think it's an interesting thing to note that, you know, most of these guys cluster fairly closely when it comes to how these physical systems are put together. You can't, you know, you can't be, um, let's say, a, a, a Premier League soccer player uh, at a, you know, really, really at the highest level of Premier League. You can't, you can't, you can't be a Premier League soccer player if you don't have good lateral movement. Um, you need to be able to move laterally. And so um, when we look, when we look at data after we assess these guys, you'll find that it tends to cluster fairly closely. And when we find outliers with respect to almost any of these physical metrics we're looking for, we predict success. Um, athletes are, 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 are their, their weakness seeking machines. And so when they find that they have a tool that's really good compared to everybody else's tool, they're going to apply that against, against inferior tools over and over and over like James step back, uh, three, for instance, but we have lots of examples of those. Um, I would say the, the jumping, uh, metrics tend to be overweighted. When people see someone who jumps really high, he gets a breakaway jump is saying again, thinking about NBA athletes here, um, I, the, the jumping metrics as well, as well as linear acceleration, like just sprint speed, those things tend to be overweighted. They've been traditionally the things that were held up as representing great athleticism. But there's so many, um, there's so many other um, performance, second order performance metrics, we call them, that are as important or more important than those, those two. And those are the two that are the most easily seen. And so um, they tend to be overweighted. So we, we tend to underweight those things. Um, our, th there have been other analyses. We've done the same thing, but there have been analyses looking at uh, jumping ability and success in the NBA, and there's, there's no correlation. The, uh, if you look at athletes that we assess at the NBA Combine, uh, how high they jump, there's no correlation between jumping high and having a career in the NBA, a successful career. So I would just say that those, those type of metrics tend to be overweighted. These elite athletes, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Sean. No, I, I was just wondering, sure. you, you mentioned some of these outliers, and I'm wondering if this is more of a subconscious thing that they, even at a young age, were just at the elite level in, in that particular niche skill. And I, I'm wondering if it was a subconscious thing that they kept just working on, or are they really aware of it now that they're at this level? Does, does James know he's an unbelievable breaker even before he came in and worked with you? It's mm, a perfect question. So I, 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 athletes almost always have some uh, inclination about what their superpower is, um, and they may think about it more in the in their competitive environment, you know, and that's that they they know that they they always beat people going to the right, 
Um, and, and when we assess them, we find out that the, the horizontal force or lateral force they create when they're moving to the right is at the 98th percentile of all athletes in their sport. And, and off the left, it's at the 60th percentile. So they have a, their, their one superpower is moving laterally to, uh, to one side. And, and th- they will almost always have some inclination that that's the case. Um, but obviously they won't think about it in terms of its data depth and, and what it entails. And so that's, you know, a lot of what we do, uh, and this is, this is, this is, uh, it, 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 I think this is pretty compelling. A lot of what we do is, um, and when we interact with an athlete and we get the most, the most, uh, seemingly jaded athlete showing up at our place, you know, from a, I don't know, like a Carmelo Anthony, you might think he wouldn't be very interested in how his body works, you know, or, or in data. Um, all these guys are interested in their data. Um, they're all interested. We, we're talking about their favorite subject. We're talking about them, you know, and and because we're dealing with m- movement data and we, we've collected lots of other types of data. I'm just saying that by far the most valuable is studying movement um, uh, to move is is to is to live. And uh, and certainly as an athlete to move is to live. So um, in this movement data, a lot of our relationships are built on us collecting data and seeing something in the data that's really compelling, whether it's a superpower or it's an injury risk, and then sharing that with the athlete and the athlete saying, that makes sense because my left knee has been hurting, because I always get beat when I'm going to my right, because, yeah, my second jump is, is really bad. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, they intuitively, they, they, what we're saying resonates with them. And when that happens, um, then you build a relationship really quickly that creates trust right away. And then they want to know what, what's the answer? You know, what do we do with that? How are we going to make that thing better? And so we're, we're fortunate that in, in dealing with movement currency, how bodies move, um, it, we, we, we find a resonance with the athlete's own intuition, um, almost every time. It's very rare that we say something and the athlete just says, that makes no sense to me. And, um, and so that, you know, that helps build, uh, like I said, build immediate trust and relationships and, and long-term relationships. You mentioned it, it's pretty easy once you get that buy-in and you, you, you describe a pain they're, they've probably been feeling based on the way they move. That, that's apparent. I'm wondering, though, how do you get that initial buy-in? I mean, it almost seems back to your Patriots days, going against the grain here. When you're doing something that, that's odd, people are usually hesitant. So I, I'm, I'm wondering how you attract them early on. Hmm. It's a good question. I, you know, my, I, and I didn't really, you know, we don't do any kind of marketing and we don't do any kind of outreach. I, I just had a lot of confidence that what we were doing was creating value and that if it, if it created value, um, through word of mouth and be, by doing something really authentic, um, that would, that would attract people that were interested in something that was really authentic and had value. And so, there's some selection bias for people that show up at our facilities because they had to make an effort in, the, in what's a short off season for professional athletes, you know, to fly over from Europe or to, you know, fly out from Miami or wherever they're coming from to come get assessed and, and get some insight in their body and hopefully help with their, their career productivity. So, so we usually have people that, that, um, that um, have the selection bias for, for already buying in, you know, they already, they already have some, they know what we do, especially now. You know, we know all the, all the athletes. So we assess players at NBA at the NBA Combine. Pretty much every one of these kids knows what we do, and all the top kids we will have assessed before that. You know, as, as 16 or 17 year olds. So 
right now it's not hard. And the other thing is right now is that is that there's other there's other sports science. It's not just us in the world now in uh, in professional sports. And so a lot of these these athletes are being exposed to different technologies and some type of data feedback loops with their college teams or with their pro teams or even with with their with their with their youth teams. Um, and so it's really easy. The buy-in is really easy. Um, but 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was much harder. It was very, it was much harder. We were dealing with, with currencies that none of these athletes are really familiar with. Um, and, um, and so, you know, how was buy-in built? It was just, I'd say it was just built on trying to have an authentic interaction with them. When you, when you knew you had information that was valuable, you gave it to them. You didn't oversell things that you weren't sure of. And, um, and from that, you know, you build, you build these, these authentic relationships. You brought up confidence at the beginning of that answer. How important has confidence been for you? Um, you say confidence? Correct. Yep, confidence. In in what we were doing or what I was doing? In your own personal path. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to be, I was very confident that we were on a path that made sense. You know, I mean, traditionally how we, how we dealt, certainly how we dealt with injuries in elite sport is that you just play your sport, you do what you want to do with your body. It's the same way you, you know, if you're a civilian, how you, how you deal with this, you know, you do what you want to do um, and you keep doing it even when something hurts until you can't do it anymore. And then you go see a physician and they tell you whether they have a solution for you. And what was really clear to me was that, was that these things would be telegraphing themselves before they became injuries that we could get, we could get insight that would be valuable. So I had to have confidence in that, in, in the value proposition to, 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 stake a career in that that space and also to uh to to take that message into sport um so i, I believed in you know i believe i had a, I, I believed in the in in the direction we were heading and it was it was clear that it would have value for athletes but also value for for humans eventually non-athletes um on a personal level i i i, I really underestimated um how many arrows you take when you're the first one <laughs> charging over the mountain like I, I can tell you, like I, re- I remember this like it was yesterday. I went out. I was, I was asked to give the keynote at the Major League Baseball uh, winter meetings to all the, and, um, and we were doing a lot of, we were doing a lot of work in baseball at the time. And I went out and I presented the stuff on kinematic sequencing, on rotational mechanics, and how you transfer momentum from one segment to the next, and how it goes wrong. It's really a model that uh, explains how a baseball player works. And uh, and most everyone there had never heard of this. Um, but worse than that, it, well, I, I felt like I was just giving him a gift, you know, the stuff that we'd work really hard on and, and you know, bringing this information from the world of science and biomechanics to, to hand to them to carry forward. And I'd look out in the room and people didn't like my message. <laughs> and I, and I was, that was new for me. I'd, I'd been in academics for so long and I came from a world where, you know, it, it, it you everyone knows that you know biochemistry because you got a 98 percent on the test and there's there's some sort of uh, um, base truth in that and and um, and 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 so if you know what you're doing that's good and then I went into this other world of the real world actually where um, it people's perception you know, has much more to do with whether or not you make them um, more or less comfortable uh, as opposed to whether or not you're right. And so we could, I knew that we were coming with a message that was right and it was valuable, but, um, but giving it to, in that case, major league strength coaches and seeing that 
the majority of them didn't want to hear the message. In fact, you just pissed them off. Was absolutely was new for me. Like I hadn't factored that in. And so, what do you do with that? Like I, I remember, I remember going for a run out there in Indianapolis. I went for a run out there in the middle of uh, in the middle of the winter, and um, and was just trying to shake off that experience. And I and I said, okay, we got to go take over a team. We got to like you know can't run from that. You got to if you know you're right, you have to be a, a beacon, right? And so. I think I had to have enough personal confidence to and conviction to get up on a soapbox when when I knew I was right. And um, and so um, when we're talking about kinematic sequencing or talking about why baseball players shouldn't go off and do a lot of long distance running because it just makes them less powerful. I mean, things that I'm absolutely certain of that make no sense to people uh, from the world I come from, this world of science, but are in fact in, in, in elite sports still. Um, when I, when I, when I had to, like I said, I felt like I had to get up on a soapbox and, um, and it'd be okay. And I can tell you like that, it, you know, my career has been, it's amazing. And most, the most time is right now. I mean, it's, it's right now it's, we have, we have so much leverage in the world and, you know, all the arrows are kind of pointing in our direction. Fun right now. And, and it all makes sense. If someone looks at what we do, they're like, oh, that's, Smart and that all makes sense, and of course that that's the right to do. Um, but but it wasn't always that way. I think that's what I'm saying. It's like I, I definitely had to take a lot of arrows in sport for coming with this message of uh, of, of science and data and technology and um, applying cause effect models all over in sport. Um, and and right now, the, the, you know, that's a message everyone is not just me, but everyone's everyone's bringing that message. But 15 years ago, it was it was it wasn't received as easily. So and, find- and and also, Sean, I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm just throw this at you, but I I really would say that that's the one thing that I give myself uh, credit for is having um, the conviction that when people that were standing in my path said you, you know don't don't bring that around here uh, when I knew it had value, I would bring it there, and uh, even in my academic path, you know I trained I trained at, at Harvard Medical School, and um, most people in my academic path thought there was a complete waste of a world-class education to go be an overqualified personal trainer in professional sports. And, um, and still I did it. And, and, you know, now I, you know, they've, they've, they've given me the high, their highest uh, sports medicine award and, and, uh, you know, brought me back as a visiting professor. And they were saying, you know, come, come and teach us about this world of sports science that you helped build because we think it's a big part of sports medicine going forward. So, um, I give myself credit for running through those stop signs when I when I knew running through them was the right thing to do, um, but, then, but then I've gotten lucky a lot um, um, after that. Yeah, timing and luck can be a hell of a thing. Uh, I'm wondering about conviction, mm-hmm. and is that something you've seen in the majority of the elite athletes you've worked with? I'm sorry. What what was that? Have you seen conviction in the majority of the elite athletes you've worked with? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, listen, when, 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 when athletes don't have conviction about themselves, about their path, about the path they're creating, about what they're going to apply, if they don't have conviction, you, you, you can't bet on them. You know, you cannot bet on them um, um, because that's, that it just, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah. They, they have, they have amazing conviction uh, uh, elite athletes, professional athletes. And I will say like in, in, in when it comes to, 
when it comes to uh, training optimization, you know, every sport is different. It's fun to work. You know, I've worked uh, at the highest level in, in all our professional sports, but also Olympic sports. Um, each of these cultures are different. The athletes are different. But the conviction is one thing that is it transcends individual sport. All, all these athletes, uh, the best athletes, certainly uh, in professional sports, but most all of them have significant conviction about themselves, what they're applying. Like I said, the path that they're on. Um, it feels like it's a necessary ingredient for success. Yeah, I've seen that amongst most of the high performers, no matter what field they're in. That inner conviction uh, just seems to be one of those essential ingredients. So so you were mentioning about this belief you had and going to talk to the MLB, and it's something that you, that you knew for 15 years, and just finally now everyone's kind of getting on board. What do you believe right now the majority of people don't believe in? Hmm. What do I believe that the majority of people don't believe in? In professional sports? Correct, yeah. I think that what they're doing right now, like we, in the last 10 years, especially in the last five years, there's, there's much more technology being applied. There's a lot more data going into athlete assessment. Um, I think people don't, um, don't understand how under optimized still, uh, a lot of professional athletes are, and they don't realize just how much value, and how much leverage is possible from data insights still. Data, the data application in professional sports is still at the stage of kind of checking a box. You know, we, we hired a biomechanist or we have a sports scientist and most of the organization can check that box now. And it might be that they have catapult or some type of, um, some type of uh, uh, inertial sensors, some type of, of, of load monitoring on board. They may be doing, they may be measuring salivary testosterone. They're doing some type of data collection on their athletes. Pretty much every organization is. Um, but rarely is it going into significant decision-making. And, um, and, and so I think that most organizations still don't know how, um, how much this is going to move the needle going forward, how much it's going to help optimize athletes, the impact it's going to have on, on prevention, you know, in, in the NBA, I, I told you that we have uh, almost almost 60% of NBA players uh, current on current rosters that we've assessed. We can go into this overall NBA database, and, and we have big data sets in these other pro sports. We're just putting a lot of juice into basketball right now. But we can go into this NBA data set, and we can say, um, uh, of the athletes that have had acute knee injuries, what are, what are the, the strongest correlations? What are the movement properties that are associated with traumatic knee injury? or of Achilles rupture, or of ankle sprain, of, of any, any injury. And, um, and we can look to change those, those movement qualities. Most people don't understand that you can change movement qualities as much as you can. Uh, most people think that, you know, if you're an athlete, say you're a basketball athlete, that you've been jumping your whole life, and that you can't take a 20-year-old um, uh, lottery pick NBA basketball player and retrain them to jump, or to land. And some of these things are really hard to change, but some of them change really quickly. And so I would say I, I still think that organizations um, haven't wrapped their arms around the, the, the leverage they're going to get from having these data insights and more precision, um, um, more precision approach to building their athletes, preventing injuries in their athletes. 
um, and um, and also using that data in scouting. I think they just don't quite understand the leverage that's that's going to be that's coming towards them. Yeah, you mentioned the leverage, and, and one of the pieces of data I came across uh, researching for this is is you and your team you identified a movement pattern for landing from jumps associated with a 300% higher increase in back injuries among the NBA players. That's true, correct? That is true. That's unbelievable. That's amazing, right? That is uh, yeah. truly amazing. That's, I mean, it just has me yeah. so excited for what you guys are doing and just the overall potential. So if you're playing this yeah. game out, what does this look like in, in 5, 10, 15 years? Well... I mean, we are in our heads. We're playing it out, and I think I, you know. I, I you know this because I, I told you when you asked me to join your podcast. We we just we spent all of our time just putting our heads down, and doing the work. You know, we don't have a marketing arm. We don't. We haven't been um, promoting what we're doing. We're just trying to really get it right. And um, you know, I feel like we can do almost anything in pro sports right now, and that's 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 exciting. And I feel like we can do that having only played a couple of the cards that are in our hand. I feel like our best cards we haven't played yet. Like all this, all this, all the, all the stuff that we're working on is is solving uh, problems that'll, the problems of tomorrow. Um, so most people haven't seen our best hands. Like they, you know, just that that last piece on on back injuries. You know, if you have a back injury and you're a professional athlete, people still say you need to work on your abdominal strength or your your trunk stability or something like that. And the reality is, if you're in a jump sport, um, you might have a really strong trunk. It's just if you land this way, and it's a real distinct movement pattern that about a third of our NBA players do, if you land this way, your chance of having a back injury are 300% higher. And it's a pattern that you can change. And so it might not be that your trunk's not strong enough. It might be that the, the shear forces on your trunk every time you land, because of the mechanics of your landing, are, 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 are so, uh, so high that, that it's, you're going to keep having back problems until you land differently. And so let's let's work on your landing mechanics like that's that's just so compelling. And and in our world, you know, we don't we don't have we just let the data speak for itself. You know, we don't have to make a case and and um, and you don't have to take our word for it. We're just we're just trying to figure stuff out. We're just trying to see, you know, what 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 the realities, what these ground truths are and then pass them forward. And so and I can tell you in our world, and this is getting at your question, our world is much more uh, our future is about facilitating for other people. You know, right now, athletes come and see us, but the future is that as many groups as makes sense are going to have access to these data correlations, these movement correlations, as it relates to injury, as it relates to scouting. And and the, that, um, that currency will help them raise the bar internally and let them do the things they want to as practitioners, but with, with uh, this other insight and data stream that, that they don't have right now. And and I just have a, I have a lot of confidence that the value of the proposition is so compelling that that's um, that'll be kind of unstoppable. You know, I really I think that it's it's easy to envision every NBA team having uh, this information within their four walls, as opposed to needing to send teams to us to have us assess them to give them that information. I'm sorry, needing to send either players or teams to us. You know, they can they can have access to our cloud-based um, uh, algorithms and and data data context. Uh, inside their four, their own four walls, so that's 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 really our future. You know, we're just trying to figure shit out. We're trying to be Switzerland in this whole thing. We, you know, we partner with a whole lot of different organizations. Everybody that we work with in pro sports is playing a zero sum game. They're competing against everybody else in their space, whether they're agents or their teams 
or it's the players against the leagues and so on. And we're, we're just trying to make it a better world for all of them. And it's, you know, it's not always easy to play Switzerland, but that's, that really is our, that's our call. You can take this question how you will, whether it be from a, a business lens, whether it's specific data around injuries, but I'm curious, you mentioned you're trying to think through what this looks like. So if you're whiteboarding out new models and, and processes, what is that actually like for you and your team? Mm. It's it's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. I can I can hear you know, in your voice. No, you, I mean you can you can tell how passionate and how much you love and live this, which is one of the big reasons I love featuring you. Well, you know what? The thing is that the currency we're dealing with is so real and it's 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 completely unexplored this this movement currency. And and it also, you know, we spend all of our time dealing with these high value bodies, you know, these guys that are getting paid 10 or 20 million dollars a year to go go play their sports because it still takes a whole lot of uh, it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of manpower to, 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 to deliver these tests and, and, and the back end to, to on it from a data science and analytics perspective to, to marry these things to consequences so that they have value. It still takes a lot of energy. So we do this on these, on these high value bodies right now. Um, but all these, all of us have bodies too. They may, they're not as valued as much as these guys, but eventually this stuff trickles down beyond professional athletes. And so eventually um, uh, the accountant still listening to this is going to have some insight into how his body works and things it's at risk for. And it's going to be able to take actions today so he doesn't wear out his hip in, in 11 years. And, um, and that's like, that's like, it's just such a, it's such a compelling space to work in. It's such a, you know, even if you've, you've never touched a prof- an elite sport, um, um, your body carries you around. Having a body that works well is, uh, is, is, is an amazing part of having a, a good life. You know, it's, it's, so, it's such an integral part of having a, a good life, whether you use it in sport or you don't. And so starting to unlock these secrets of human movement and share them to, for the advantage of, of, of professional athletes, but hopefully for, for civilians as well in the future. It's just, it's just a, it's been such an amazing path. It really is a, it's just a really fun space to be in right now. It's an exciting time and place to be. So another thing you've mentioned multiple times is just some of the second order metrics you're looking at. And my brain peaks up just from my investing background and and the businesses I run. I'm always trying to think through those second and third order consequences for you studying athletes. What are you looking at when you're considering those second order metrics? So as I said, there's, you know, there's, there's a couple things that are really apparent to the human eye in athletes. You know, we're pretty good at approximating how big people are. We're pretty good at approximating how high they're jumping relative to other people and how fast they're running. Those are things that we're good at. Um, but there's all these other things that are important in sport um, that are as or, as or more important than those things I just listed that the human eye is really bad at seeing. And when you study granular human movement, um, those things start becoming more and more apparent. And there are things like, like how athletes control their center of mass when they're cutting, um, how quickly they can, they can, uh, they can, they can change direction. They can go from, you know, eccentric concentric movements. There's, there's, there's a whole lot of these second order performance metrics that, um, that, as I said, are going to be as important or more important than the things that are apparent to the eye. And so those are, you, those are, those are investable, right? If you use your, your finance terms, you know, those are, that's, 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 those are, um, 
um, uh, data flows that not everyone has access to, and they're bettable. And so a lot of our team relationships right now, just over the last couple of years, we've started doing this, um, but a lot of our relationships now are on the scouting side where we'll actually set up labs within organizations and, um, and assess all the athletes they're thinking about drafting. And so, and or or signing as free agents. And so, to have all this this data flow, including these second order performance metrics, um, um, in um, in 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 these in these competitive environments of professional sports, where other teams don't have those that data flow, creates competitive advantages. Like we have a, we have a model right now, uh, an algorithm, to describe athletes that can play that can defend on the perimeter. We have an algorithm to try to identify. Um, elite NBA defenders. And a lot of these guys weren't elite college defenders because they weren't asked to be, because they were, they were scoring 26 points a game in college. You know, they were elite scorers in college, but they're not going to be elite, elite NBA uh, scorers. Um, but they have physical systems that would allow them to be elite defenders. And our advanced, the advanced metrics in, on the defensive side in, in basketball are not that good. Um, oftentimes, like I said, the players wasn't, the player wasn't asked to be an elite perimeter defender in, in college. And there, there are physical systems that you need to have. There's Newtonian physics behind being able to stay in front of somebody in the, on, a, on a perimeter in basketball. And once you identify those physical characteristics, and you can do it by looking at all the players that you have in the league that are elite defenders, once you identify those, then you can use them in scouting. And you can start, you can start drawing up these lines between uh, potential draft picks and um, and and being world class perimeter defenders in players that it hasn't it's undiscovered because they've never been asked to do those things. I know this so isn't your, those, no no that's fascinating. I know this isn't your expertise at all, but I would just love to get your hypothesis on this. So if you rewind ten fifteen years ago, uh, the NBA has changed considerably, and I just think about the, the three point play. And I'm wondering, if you were to fast forward 10 years, what do you think, based on some of the data and algorithms you guys are working on, might the game look different from? You know, the games just keep getting faster. The, uh, you know, the incentive to be a player in that league just keeps going up. Um, we, you know, we have players that, you know, might take a little bit of a hit this year, but we have players that, that sign contracts as the first guy off the bench that are $80 million, you know, 60 to $80 million. So you have guys that aren't even starters that are making a whole lot of money playing that league now. So the, the net um, that's being thrown is getting bigger and bigger for bringing in elite athletes into, into that league and all leagues is the truth. Um, and so the game just keeps getting more ballistic. It keeps getting faster and it starts, it starts approximating um, what, the physical potential of these athletes are so bigger net more um uh more elite athletes more length um and obviously the three stretches things out and you know there's some push to have a four-point shot there's um i don't think the game is gonna the game the game will only get more athletic um and late length and athleticism will continue to be at, a, at even more of a premium so, I mean, I think that's like, that's a general trend. I can tell you, we, we actually, I think we're going to do, we might do a project, uh, maybe with, uh, with, well, we might do a project that you'll, you'll see, um, um, in, in a public way, but we, we can, we can, we can show you how much more athletic the big men in the NBA are, uh, today than they were 10 years ago. Uh, it used to be if we have a seven foot guy walk in, 
we're like, okay, he's going to have a, he's going to have a job somewhere. If we have a seven foot athlete walk in a seven foot basketball player, walk into our place now, and they're not a good lateral mover, meaning they can't, they can't guard the pick and roll. They can't guard the perimeter. Um, they may not be able to create their own space. If they can't do that, they probably don't have a career in the NBA. That's, that's completely different. Like the, the big guys are getting athletic right now. So the, the data just is, is going to continue to point towards more athletic uh, players, more ballistic players. And th- that's a more risky way to play too. And so, um, you know, it's, 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 it's the, 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 the push on these systems, the, the uh, propensity of these systems to break isn't going to be lessened um, unless they, unless they um, really tinker with the schedule, which may happen too. It's also interesting. It's even funny watching the, the Chicago Bulls documentary, watching them. They were before a game or something, just messing around, taking the half court shots and how hard it looked for them to have to shoot that distance of a shot where now you see guys mm-hmm. like Harden. And I mean, it's just, they just flick their wrists and it's up yeah. there. So uh, yeah. we're, we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but you really bring a cutting edge approach to sports performance and you clearly are highly well-read. You, you know a lot about a lot of different things. And I'm wondering what approaches you use for learning new things. Well, I'll tell you what, as a, as, as a lifelong approach, um, what I've done is do things that are interesting to me. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've created a career that was in the most interesting space I could find uh, for me personally. And, and so it's super easy to ingest new information when you're doing things that are just interesting to you. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, uh, what I'd read in my spare time is stuff in sports and then eventually in physiology, like understanding how the body worked and biomechanics. And so if, it's, if that's what I want to want to do in my spare time, um, and I can make that my career, then it gets really easy to be committed to constantly ingesting new information where it comes from. It, it changes, it changes. I mean, I get, I, I, I read a little bit less than I used to. Um, but I read every night, you know, I always, I always have a nonfiction book going. I always have journal articles. I usually have a fiction book going. Um, I love podcasts, you know, podcasts make learning, uh, and also getting subjective insight from, 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 from pros in different spaces, really, really easy. Um, you know, pieces like yours. So I've, uh, I, 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 I would say, um, the biggest thing is, is, is finding something you're passionate about and learning in that space. And if, you know, if you want to develop some type of expertise, follow a passion, and it's, it sounds really uh, passe or cliche to say it, but most people don't follow a passion. They, they really don't. And, and usually peeps, people stop telling you to follow a passion sometime around uh, when you have to start making car payments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you bring up such an unbelievable point. That's such a great piece to, to wrap up here on. But uh, I do have just two final questions for you. In your eyes, what's the most impressive athletic display you've ever seen? So that could be something done in the weight room. That could be an on-court performance. I would love to know through your eyes what what that would be. Oh my goodness, I don't. I really don't like singling them out because there's there's so many. I can tell you that seeing 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 NBA players jump is always really exciting for me. It's really compelling. Seeing guys just defy gravity and 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 by the way, the fact that it's so um, visceral it's like so emotionally compelling you know watching a guy like like zach levine who's an amazing one-foot jumper is just amazing jumper 
see him coming into our facility and touching 12, eight or so, um, it, it takes your breath away, you know, because it's, it, it, that is so high, you know, you look at 12, eight and you think there's no way a human could spend time up there and then you watch them do it. And, 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 um, um, the, the fact that, um, that you're so mesmerized makes you think that it must be perfect when you see athletes do something like that. And I will tell you, that that's actually one of the high leverage points is the athletes are so good at compensating that if you're collecting this granular data on symmetry, on rotation across long bones and all these things that, that create risk, if you're collecting this data, um, you, you're not just focused on being mesmerized by the fact that somebody can touch 12, eight or jump really high. Cause a, a lot of these athletes can perform really, really well but do it in a way that's really dangerous because of usually because of compensation patterns, but sometimes just because that's the way they're, they're put together. Um, so that's, 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 that's a high value intervention to, to separate what your eyes see from, from some ground truth of what physics is showing you uh, behind the scenes. I've always thought, um, Sean, I've always thought it was really compelling to see very, very big guys move faster than you think big guys should be able to move. Um, the NFL, it's interesting to watch guys run, you know, a four, four forty, that's, it's, that's compelling. But to see a guy that's 300 plus pounds, you know, 315 pounds run a five second, uh, uh, 40, that's way more impressive. That is a ridiculous amount of momentum. It's just it's so much momentum. Um, so for me personally, those are, those are a couple of the things, but there's all, every sport has its own, has it, has its own super emotional, um, uh, amazing feats, you know, and including the endurance sports and on and on. Um, so, so I, I don't like, I don't like to, I don't like to single out one performance or even one, you know, one type of athleticism as being the, the most interesting, the most jaw dropping. Yeah. I knew you'd cringe at the question, but I just love even though the, just distilling it down to a couple there, I, I could dive deep on, on you talking about this all day. So I really do appreciate that. Uh, I'm wondering, I know you guys are, are not big in the media, things of that nature, even though you work with the world's best athletes, but where can I direct the listeners? Where can they stay up to date with what you're doing and everything that P3 has going on? Hmm. Um, you know, you can go, you can get a taste of it from our, from our Instagram feed. Uh, P3 sports science. And, um, and they, you know, they, we don't, again, we don't spend a whole lot of energy in, in the outfacing world. Um, but, um, but you can get, you can get a pretty good taste of, of how we look at uh, the physics of sport and how we use this to athletes advantages. It's just a, a, a P3 sports science Instagram site. Awesome. Well, we'll have that linked up and, and everywhere else that listeners can stay connected with you. But Dr. Marcus Elliott, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Hey, it's my pleasure, Sean. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. And hopefully we get to do this in person at some point. Maybe we can get you in and uh, test you. Absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, and I give you, I guarantee we can give you some insight into, into what's going on in your body and probably show you some of the things that had happened to it in the past uh, that, that are better than it in terms of how it's moving. I'd love that. Uh, in these elite athletes, being able to reset mechanics after they have an injury is a huge thing. Um, having this really granular perspective on how these athletes move, how much force they create in different, and, 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 and how much flexion is across joints when they're jumping and cutting, having this real deep view into how these athletes are put together allows you to know exactly how their bodies have changed after they had an injury. And so often what will happen with humans is they, they have an injury, they recover from that injury, 
and there's some movement pattern, some compensation that they run to. And that compensation can, in an athlete, be career limiting, and in a non-athlete, can lead to much bigger injuries, much things that you can't turn the clock back on. And so the future for for non-athletes as well as as well as athletes, it was, it's the now for professional athletes, but the future for for civilians is that you're going to have some data flow on how your body works, how it moves. Uh, you have a bad ankle sprain, or you know you hit your knee, or you have a small meniscus tear. Um, you you have um, breadcrumbs in the forest that that can take you back to how you moved before you were hurt. So you don't develop a compensation pattern that leads to wearing out the the, the the cartilage and the medial aspect of your left knee, which is how things work right now. If you have this this data around your movement, you could reset your movements to what they were before you had that injury, and that that will be groundbreaking. Um, that will prevent a lot of a lot of tear, a lot of the a lot of the that we have uh, as we go through life. Everyone's lucky that you're that you're leading the charge on this. But once again, thank you so much for joining us. It's my my pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for having me, man. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.